0: Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. My guest today is Phil Coggan. Phil's been a writer for The Economist since 2006, where he authors the weekly Bartleby column on work and management. He's the author of several books, the most recent of which is More, A History of the World Economy from the Iron Age to the Information Age. Phil, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks very much for inviting me, Jim.
0: You say this book is a warts-and-all look at the history of the world economy, but lately it seems that people assume the history of capitalism is all warts. People think our modern economy is built on this foundation of imperialism and slavery and exploitation. And yes, we should discuss those wars. But isn't it fair to recognize that the rise of the world economy has also been a beautiful story of human progress?
1: Definitely. Of course, there have been wars and uh, imperialism, slavery, worker exploitation all occurred in the last few centuries. But if you take the big picture um would you swap being a human in 1400 for a human in the early 21st century if you go back six centuries you would have had very limited choices of employment you would have had uh no books no entertainment um no antibiotics or medicine woe betide you if you got attacked there would be no police force or fire service to help you if the um house got on fire uh you your life expectancy would be very short. Your diet would be very restricted. Uh, Your height would be very restricted. Uh, And uh, if you're a woman, you know, you would be confined to a very small um, number of tasks. And a man, you know, you might probably the chances are you'd be a peasant or or a servant for uh, some feudal lord. So leap forward 600 with all the, the problems that did occur in that time. And for mankind as a whole, it's been a fantastic bargain. Uh, There are many more of us, for a start. There are more than 7 billion, approaching 8 billion of us. We live longer on average. We are taller on average. Uh, Maternal uh, deaths in childbirth have fallen dramatically. Deaths in the first few years of life have fallen dramatically. So people are healthier, stronger, have many more choices, uh, and are are literate. Um, it's It's a great bargain relative to life in 1400.
0: A lot has been said about this transformation from widespread poverty to the sort of widespread wealth that we have today. What do you see as the key mechanism of that transformation?
1: Well, I I think the the underlying mechanism is connections between people. So in the world of um, 1400, to go back there before, we really saw any uh, great signs of the economic growth that subsequently emerged. There was long distance trade, but it was confined really to luxuries like silk and jewels um, and much of the world. Well, of course, barely knew the other parts of the world existed. Um, and I should have mentioned in the other part that in diets were restricted, you know, the the Colombian exchange, which occurred after 1500 brought a wide variety of plants and livestock to different parts of the world and enriched uh, cuisines around the world. Um, but once we started to make those connections. Uh, And of course, there was a bad sign of that, of course, in in the form of slavery in the slave trade across the Atlantic. But uh, China uh, started to trade with um, the rest of the world in a a much more serious uh, form, uh, bringing in uh, the silver that we were getting in uh, Latin America, Europeans and Americans, and then exchanging that for goods. Uh, The um, uh, Americas uh, initially started with exploitation of the silver mines, but eventually grew to uh, this the vast economy we see today. And uh, because of those connections, we were also able to exploit technological innovations. There'd been technological innovations all through the previous millennia, but they were very slow to, um, catch on in other places. Thanks to printing, which was a great technological technological innovation, it was possible to um, spread the knowledge of that much quicker. And then, of course, thanks to transport, um, uh, sailing ships and later steamships and trains, uh, these innovations were spread all over the world. And uh, innovation and connections go together. Uh, uh, also, because the more people you have involved in a network, the more the chances that one of them will have a bright idea, will be able to um, spot something that the others haven't seen. And then the others can be made aware of that idea and exploit it themselves. So um, it, it's the it's the ability to make connections with the other billions of people around the planet that has made us more prosperous. Well, I,
0: I I love the theme of connections uh, for a couple of, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, and I know some uh, authors hate when I talk about other authors, uh, you know, during these podcasts. One of my one of our favorite one of my favorite guests uh, was a, uh, a computational physicist, Cesar Haldago, who wrote a great book called Why Information Grows. And and his theory is that he sort of looked at economies as sort of giant collective computers. Formed of formed of you know myriad human networks, and you know those and some of those networks we call schools, others we call universities, other we call uh, uh, companies, but also networks sort of uh, between uh, countries. That, that that sort of that idea of connection sort of was really caught on uh, to me. And one metaphor that I've been using in my writing, which I've uh, which I've, I've stolen from the Economist, is 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 the idea that you can have a, a drawbridge up country and economy or a drawbridge down country and economy and what you're saying is the book is really that a lot of our where we are today and our living standards is because countries and economies became drawbridge down and they connected and there was a and there was a flow of trade and eventually a, a flow of talent and a flow of capital globally and uh you know I guess my my conclusion is we have, we should be very careful about dismissing the value of those uh, of those connections
1: I agree absolutely and and of course my, other people have pointed out the contrast between say North Korea and South Korea or Korea and taiwan and other, and other parts of Asia uh in the first three or four decades after the second world War. It doesn't necessarily have to be a completely uh, free market focus or indeed a democratic focus, but the countries that concentrated on becoming export machines, opening up to the rest of the world, prospered more quickly. And just look at what happened to China, which cut itself off um, from the rest of the world up until the death of Mao, uh, who, you know, a brutal dictator who, um, had man schemes for improving the economy, which one of which led to a great famine. Once Mao was gone and uh, Deng Xiaoping ref, uh, reformed the economy, it started to look outside as an export machine. The prosperity has just taken off in the last four decades and taken many people out of um, poverty, extreme poverty. I mean, it's a billion people have come out of extreme poverty in the last um 20 years around the world, which is a remarkable and often unsung achievement. And that's because China, as you say, put the drawbridge down to the rest of the world. Now that does have knock-on effects on the rest of the world, of course. Um, but if you look at it from the point of view of a Martian looking at down Earth, has Earth become better off because China put the drawbridge down? Definitely it has.
0: And the and, and the idea of these connections is not and it's not just sort of the 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 trading aspect sort of the the classic sort of you think the adam smith uh, um, aspect but also the idea that it's that what's that these connections it's not just goods and you know goods you know going back and forth and you know which is fantastic but also people connecting with other people and their ideas people being exposed to their ideas and then you build and then those ideas combine you're building so to me which i guess is more they would uh, they would call the, maybe the Schumpeterian growth or something um, where you have, you have all that innovation because it's all, it's a story of connections, meaning pe- more, more contact between people, more trade, but also, and the reason, the reason this history of a world economy, uh, why it has, why it's, why I think it's kind of an exciting story is really that sort of innovation part of the world economy when growth, you know, I'm sure and, and you know. I've, I've talked about my favorite chart of all time many times in this podcast showing, uh, you know, showing you know, per capita growth, just kind of going, you know, swooshing, stri- swooshing straight up. And if all you yeah, saw, the stick, you know, yeah. if all you knew about that world economy was that chart, you'd think the aliens landed and gave us technology or something. But it's actually with us. We did
1: that. Yeah. Yes, it required a number of things. And, and it's an interesting um, question of to, as to what made things take off in, in the 18th century and then the 19th century. And I think it, it was the concatenation of a number of factors. So the fact that the new world had been opened up and was connected to the old world, that was a, a way for the, old, for the Europe to move surplus population off the farms and onto, into the Americas, which had lots of land and few people. Uh, the technology moved, um, you know, partly um, by industrial espionage in the early 19th century. Textile machinery uh, moved to the U.S., for example. Um, of course, then there were great the great uh, advances in transport, which allowed people to move a- across uh, the Atlantic in, in huge numbers. Um, and all of that created this uh, first great era of globalization in the, the late 19th century, when America emerged, uh, Germany uh, became an economic power to rival um, Britain uh, in, within Europe. Uh, lots of other bits of um, uh, Europe started to industrialize. Japan built up its own textile industry, showing it wasn't uh, simply a, a European thing as well. Um, and uh, that was era of great freedom for goods and uh, people and capital to flow around the world. Um, and uh, we may be getting onto this later, but then there was this Sudden shift post nineteen fourteen, where things uh, started to go backwards, and I think that's that. If we're looking for warning signs for today, it's that post nineteen fourteen phase uh, which we need to worry about.
0: I think some people they 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 embrace the going backward because I think that's exactly what we need to do. That somehow, uh, let's just speak for, you know, for the United States that we really went off track. Decades ago, as we uh, made our economy more drawbridge down, whether we opened up more to trade, as especially as uh, other countries recovered from the, uh, World War II, that we made our country more open to immigrants, and it was that and that openness has been a bad thing. So what you point, so what you're pointing out is we have to be careful. There's certainly a political element in this country and in other countries as well, as well that will that would embrace that kind of reversal.
1: What yes, look at wrong? the difference between American attitudes post 1918 and post 1945. So, post 1918, uh, America moved into isolationism, uh, withdrew from the League of Nations, uh, and uh, once things started to go wrong in 1930, they, there's the Smoot-Hawley. Uh, tariff and we had uh, the Great Depression in the 1930s. Post 1945, uh, America strode, bestrode the economic world, not just the military world, like a colossus. Uh, but it made the very far seeing decision to offer martial aid to um, Europe and uh, thus realizing that if it helped Europe recover, then it would create this enormous market of customers for American goods. And the result was 25 to 30 years of of fantastic economic growth uh, around the world. Uh, And America took part and safeguarded Europe from uh, the threat of communism and the the Soviet Union. Uh, And so it was an incredibly wise piece of altruism. Um, But the, the risk of course comes when you have a, you get another power um that emerges which challenges you uh in your sort of economic backyard the soviet union was a military threat to the uh america but it wasn't really an economic threat but china is a a both and the same thing happened if you go back to the early 20th century with germany emerging as both a military and economic threat to, to britain and thus it's less um easy to be um altruistic to be um to, to To keep the drawbridge down when you 're facing that kind of challenge, and that 's that 's the worry going forward over the next ten or twenty years
0: was it a mistake for the West to usher China into the world
1: economy i don 't think it was uh, a mistake. Could it have been done differently? Could it have been done in a way that tied China more into having to obey the rules of trade and not do the you know the very real restrictive Um, practices in terms of intellectual property and keeping out foreign firms. And so that China does use, I mean, people who complain about China have the right to complain about China for these things. But again, um, when we, I was mentioning in an early answer, a billion people came out of um, poverty in the last 20 years. So it's hard to see a a decision like that as a mistake. And, you know, it's also worth thinking that what has happened in the last 20 or 30 years, China has uh, sold America a lot of cheap goods, and America has paid back China in uh, dollars debt, which currently yields what less than one percent for ten-year uh, treasury bills in a currency that America uh, controls and China doesn't control. So, um, is that w- who's actually getting the worst of that bargain? You might you might argue. Um, should we have thought more about how to uh, compensate the losers from? Um, China's trade growth, yes. Uh, Should we have insisted on firmer checks that make sure that China obeyed the rules? Yes, Um, but I think you know, in it, I don't think it's a a mistake in historic terms. It was the right thing broadly to do.
0: Do you think China has figured out a new and better way to either do capitalism or a or a different sort of way to produce? economic growth and prosperity from sort of the more, you know, bottoms up market way that, you know, at least we like, at least we like to think that we do uh, in the West. There's authoritarian capitalism. Is that, is that the
1: future? Unfortunately, it is a model that appeals to some countries, but I don't think it is a new and better way. No. Um, One of the great gains that are made when uh, economies are developing, essentially that you're moving workers from low productivity areas like agriculture into high productivity areas like manufacturing and uh, you know, one of the reasons that the uh, European economies developed so quickly after World War II, as they did that too. About half of Italians were working in agriculture in 1945, uh, and by 1970s, you know, Italy was a, a very heavily industrialized economy. So, um, and they've had their problems since then. So, you get these huge gains when you do that, and then eventually you reach the stage of you've exhausted all the gains from moving people from agriculture into industry, and you've probably overinvested in some sectors and become uh, inefficient. Uh, and that's when uh, growth starts to struggle and of course we worried in the late 1980s that um, japan had cracked a, a model that uh, the rest of us hadn't understood that they had these companies which weren't too worried about you know profits and they were only worried about market share and they, they figured it out and then japan suddenly hit a wall so at some point um, china will run into uh, its own problems and of course it has a demographic problem in that it's um, aging quite fast um, despite its you know uh, Emerging market status, unlike plenty of other countries in the developing world. Uh, And uh, so the workforce will start to decline, and it's much harder to grow your economy, uh, as Japan has found, uh, when that starts to happen.
0: I think it's important for us to get faster economic growth.
1: And I'm still surprised by those who think that
0: is not a good goal. Some of those people are worried about the environment, and others are worried about technology causing too much disruption. What do you think has caused this backlash? against economic growth
1: well I I think uh, the cause is twofold one is as you say the environmental concerns Um, and on on that point um, per capita use of energy in the US peaked in the 1970s I'm pretty sure Um, and it it has been possible to reduce the sort of um, environmental cost per unit of GDP growth um, over recent decades and I'm sure with the right technology um, it it could be possible to do that a lot further, and we've eliminated, you know, other problems like the hole in the ozones there with, with you know our technological expertise, um, and um, various governments are trying out, you know, uh, subsidizing renewable energy, which may or may not be popular at the AEI, but um, if you can get the cost down to a certain level where you know uh, the usership goes up, then you get those sort of economies of scale, which uh, happen with other technologies. But the second reason, I think, is this problem that that we've had the sense in the last 30 years in the West that the, uh, the benefits of economic growth have gone largely to a very small elite. Uh, and there's lots of dispute about you know how exactly to record the figures. But it's pretty clear that productivity and real wage growth have not gone hand in hand in the last, say, 30 years in the way that they clearly did in the 30 years after the Second World War. Um, and uh, I'm not, you know, there are plenty of explanations as to why that may happen, uh, why that's happened. But it's something that really governments need to tackle going forward over the the next 20 years. And I think it it explains why we have the growth of, Populist politicians in in various countries around the world who are kind of saying, you know, it's all a trick by the elite You need to shut out other countries um, uh, From your trade because they're they're cheating you Um, That argument is given force by the fact that people really don't feel that their living standards have improved as they did in the past
0: Uh, When when economic growth took off uh, The world was not filled with liberal democracies, certainly not liberal democracies as we know them today. So what is sort of, as you've gone through this book, what do you think is the sort of the relationship between uh, economic growth, economic freedom, and political freedom?
1: Yes, it's very interesting, isn't it? I, You're right that uh, it didn't uh, take off with full democracy, but I think if you look at the... Places where the first place to take off uh, was Britain, and you could throw the Netherlands in there. And those were countries where absolute monarchy uh, had had its power curbed, and you had governments effectively. Uh, backed by the merchant classes, and both in Britain and the Netherlands in the 18th century, they were able to see off France, which is m- much more powerful potentially, because they had the ability to finance wars, you know, by by borrowing money from their own uh, creditor classes, whereas France was stumbling from one debt crisis to the next. So, if you have an economy where uh, the government is is not uh, forever at risk of seizing your property, seizing the the fruits of your labors then then that's a good thing and as democracy develops, of course the governments are uh, constrained because you know the property owners don't want their property seized and um, and that those that's one reason why the two things go in hand what we um, the, the big question I suppose going forward for the next thirty years is w- what Will drive that those productivity gains which we desperately need, and um, the sense is that it 's creativity uh, and the ability to sort of think outside the box and i don 't think creativity and the ability to think outside the box come is possible in an authoritarian state. China again, to go back to it has has almost done what the Soviet Union did in the mid twentieth century where you know it 's just used rapid industrialization to power up its economy. And, you know, that's enormously successful in the opening stages. But but for that final stage, you need um, the ability to uh, be innovative and feel that you will get the fruits of your innovations. And America still, you know, is able to do that in a much more successful way than um, most other countries. And and the fact that we've already mentioned Silicon Valley, the fact that that is the place where more new business models are emerging than than anyone else is is really striking. And I was just looking at some figures um, in this week's edition of The Economist and and new business startups have, have soared since the start of the pandemic, interestingly enough, and people are trying out new business models. And so we may yet see another wave of innovation. You couldn't do that. In um, the Soviet Union, and I don't think there's a scope to do it so much in China.
0: You mentioned the pandemic, and indeed, this book was released in March. Uh, just as many countries you know, being to shut down their economies in response um, to the coronavirus, and my concern is that is that on the other side of this pandemic is that we'll have a more sort of risk-averse society. Uh, people won't. People will be won't be trying out new business models. Um, but you see you seem to suggest that uh that maybe that won't be the case, that maybe we won't be more inward looking, that maybe we'll we'll come out of this and actually want to, want to take more risk. Which you think is at this point, which you think is more likely that we'll become more risk-averse and inward looking, or uh we'll think, boy, you know, it's really important that we're a rich, technologically advanced society, uh, whether to deal with the future pandemic or climate change or some other uh unknown unknown existential uh risk um which way you think it'll go, it's going to go
1: it's a very good question I, and obviously different people will react in different ways and different societies will react in different ways i think um i would say that what tends to happen with crisis is accelerates um Changes which were already in train. So uh, we've seen that already with online retailing, um, which has been great for the last 20 years, has had a, a huge lift out of this crisis. The cashless society um, has had a, a big lift out of this um, uh, crisis. Uh, one thing, incidentally, whenever I go to America, always baffled me is why. Um, credit card, security, chip and pin has never made it in America. It all seems kind of antediluvian process, buying goods in America where you, you have a signature on the back of the car which no one looks at, you know, it's, it's really strange. Anyway, um, so innovation come, can come through there. And the innovation also occurs in 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 the way that people have discovered they can work from home and they can be equally productive, if not more productive at home. And that will create another whole kind of... Um, a change in the economy as you know, <coughs> business moves to supplying people in their local area rather than relying on them to commuting into cities every day you know, as as they have done up to now. So I'm more hopeful. Um, you know, it, far from certain, it does depend on the political reaction. If uh, the political reaction is to say everything that comes from abroad is you know um, is terrible. Look, we we imported this virus then that will be uh, really bad. But um, it's not, populism doesn't always, um, doesn't necessarily grow exponentially. And if you look at populist governments around the world, uh, just choose an example which won't offend anybody. Brazil has not, for example, has not handled the pandemic very well. So, if if you have a sign that it's not populism isn't always efficient, um, then people might return to understanding that you know a good government involves cooperating with other countries. Uh, and if you all the problems that the world faces at the moment require whether it is climate change or uh, international crime and terrorism, tax evasion, they all require. Cooperation with other nations.
0: Are we in a period of quote, late capitalism where massive inequality will lead to the start of something else? Or are we entering a period of transformation into something that will still be very recognizable to people who've been alive for the past half century?
1: I, I think it's it's the latter. I can take the more optimistic view. I mean, I grew up in the 70s when we also seem to be facing uh, a crisis with stagflation, um, strikes. Um, terrorism, uh, two oil crises, um, America had them. Jimmy Carter and the Malaise Speech. Britain was described as um, ungovernable. You know that that seemed a moment of enormous crisis, and yet that was followed by the nineteen eighties and some kind of um, renewal. And then we had. Um, the you know the sudden surge in productivity in the late 1990s, which showed that we we could generate more productivity uh, in the sort of what when people were even then talking about late capitalism. So it, it can be done again. Um, the risk, as a, as we've been saying throughout this um, conversation, is that uh, we turn inwards politically and stop that from happening. So. That we do exactly the same as people did after 1914 when they restricted immigration and they restricted trade uh, and nationalism surged. Um, and, um, you know, I, one can't predict how these things will work out. Um, but um, if people only understand that they, that trade is not a zero sum game, uh, that immigration has brought enormous benefits. I mean, the United States economy was built on mass immigration in the late 19th century. That's why it became an economic superpower. Um, then I think um, this book will have served some sort of purpose in uh, and, and changing the debate to think about you know, why we were successful in the past and why we shouldn't give up those successful traits when we look forward to the future.
0: My guest today has been Philip Cargan. Philip, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks very much, Jim.